I think some of that is obviously the Holy Spirit. I'm in First Peter uh, chapter 4 this morning, titled Living Up to Your Name. And as we continue a series on the missionary mindset, a lot of times when we think about the missionary mindset, we think, you know, what does it mean that, that we get everybody in, in position to go marching out in the community? That is not an organizational task. It's a task between you and God and me and God. And we're going to look this morning. We have a name that we are to uphold. We are to bear. And we want to talk about that this morning. But for our scripture text, I'm bouncing around all over the place. But for our reading, I'm going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, the end of the chapter. So I'll ask when you find that if you'll stand in our awesome God's honor. As I read, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. (laughs) However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray. Here I am, God. Here we are, God, once again. You know who we are. You really know who we are. And we come before you grateful for the cross, grateful for your forgiveness. Father, knowing that we are called to be yours in a culture and community that simply does not understand. Trapped by sin and The sinful nature, not understanding the power of a Savior who sets us free. We seem peculiar, (laughs) and I suppose we are, because that is what happens when we are redeemed. I pray this morning as we talk about living up to that wonderful name that brings redemption. Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to be among us. We believe you have been so far, and I do not want that. To stop. So, Lord, just speak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the 1600s, a guy by the name of George Fox stood before a judge. And the judge was bringing some charges against George Fox. He was a leader of a group called the Society of Friends. And as he heard the charges... And the judge said to George Fox, what do you have to say? And he said this, I bid you to tremble at the word of God. And it made me think of what God said in Isaiah 66 verse 2, the second part of the verse. God talks about the one that he respects, the one he listens to. Here's what Isaiah 66 2, the second part of the verse says. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles 
at my word. I can't help but believe that's what George Fox, that's what had been pounded into his heart. He said, God, it's not about me. I, I want to be humble and contrite. And I want to tremble at your word. I do not want to take it superficially, nonchalantly. I, I want to tremble. Out of that, uh, the judge in the courtroom mocked George Fox and the Society of Friends. He says, oh, they're a bunch of people that just tremble all the time. All they do is quake. And so they called them Quakers. So if you've heard of the Quakers, <laughs> it came from these people that said, we tremble at the word of God. And then maybe you've heard of a group led by John Wesley that became known as the Methodists. They began uh, to receive that name because they were very methodical in the disciplines that they sought to live to walk close with God. And thus they were called Methodists. And we could go on with other groups. But going back in the early church, we learn in Acts 9-2 that some of those first believers were known as the way. They were called the way. And of course, I believe that probably came from John 14-6 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through the Father, through Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. But what's fascinating is the term in the Scriptures that seems to have really stuck to identify the followers of Jesus Christ. It is the term Christian. And it literally means belonging to Christ. That I-E-N is belonging to, and then Christ, belonging to Christ. It tells us in Acts chapter 11, that's when they first received that nickname that was used to identify them. And it was not a word that uh, was of praise. It was actually of criticism. In their minds, they were saying, well, you follow this guy, and he came, and he had these call, he had this cause, and he was crucified. He died, and that was the end of the story. But it was far from the end of the story. This group, known as the way, and that became known as belonging to Christ, they began to meet on Sundays instead of the Sabbath day, Saturday. Why? Because it was that day, early in the morning on Sunday, that they found out that the grave was empty and that Jesus Christ was fully alive. And thus that name, Christian. Now, in, a, in our countries, unfortunately... It's kind of a double-edged sword. Fortunately, many of our, our foundation and our moral base founded upon the truth of the Scriptures and upon Jesus Christ and the Judeo-Christian ethic, which is a beautiful truth. But there became this idea that, well, I'm a Christian. You say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm an American, right? It's the same thing. 
Whereas I love the idea of the truths of God being part of our culture, permeating our culture in every way. The foundation for that is not just being an American. It is coming to grips with the truth that I need a Savior and that there's only one that can fulfill that role and His name is Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the story of the Gospel that He came here sent from God as God in Carnation became man in human likeness, though fully God, lived that perfect life among us, died upon that cross, buried, raised to life at the right hand of the Father. But there are those who just see being a Christian as living in the South, or being an American, or people who go to church occasionally. Uh, it's said in one country in South America where bullfighting is prevalent that young men are able to jump over the fence. So right when the bull is released, they have their moment of glory as bullfighters. And they dress up all colorfully. And they have that moment of heroism. And so you have up to 100 men. There's only two criteria. The first criteria is you have to be over 18 years of age. The second criteria is you have to be sober. You can't be drunk and jump in there. So, you know, it's not unusual at a bullfight to have at least 100 young men over 18 jump in there and start their bravado until the bull is released. (laughs) And when the bull heads that way, they get out of there in a hurry, jumping over the fence. There are those who refer to themselves as Christian, until the fight begins. Until the bull heads their direction. And, and then they're ready to, to, to climb out of the arena of life. And that's what God calls us to, is to publicly live for Him. To be the salt and to be the light. As a matter of fact, we're told in Acts 4 and 5, that early record of the, of the church, the young church, they said that we... We'll keep the laws. But when the laws conflict against the gospel, against living the gospel and, and, and being faithful to the gospel, we must obey God rather than men. But for the majority of those cases, if anybody should keep the laws, it should be those in Christ. If anybody should be a good citizen... It should be those who are born from above. Peter, in the text that I wrote, he basically said, Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. That it is a badge of honor, not a a badge of shame. As you look at the early church and the struggle they had, sometimes we act as if, You know, some of the crazy, moral, downward spiral examples we see day by day. That we are the first ones to experience a tough culture. But let me just, I think it's important to look at some little church history. And I just want to share some of that as I go through the message. Um, If you go back into the early church, they had what they called the ancient 12 tables of Roman Law, And the church often protested or stood up against that Roman table of 12 
laws because it did not honor the Lord Jesus. For example, the Roman tutor of Caesar's, a person named Seneca, who lived during the time of the apostles, defended the killing of babies. (laughs) This tutor said, we drown children who at birth are weak and abnormal. And there are other countries around the world where this is typical, including India, China, Japan, the Brazilian jungles, even among many of the Eskimos. There are places where human life is considered to be almost worthless. A church leader named Clement from Alexandria wrote of the Roman government. He said they go around protecting young birds and other animals while they have no moral regard for their own children as they abandon them and as they abort them. Matter of fact, Plato argued it was the right of the city-state government for a woman to submit to abortion so that there would not be overpopulation, so that there would not be too many people in the land. And then church history in 379, it's funny how history repeats itself. Church leaders denounced the practice of selling, of selling aborted babies to make cosmetic products, beauty products, in 379. A.D. You see, there were believers who cared deeply about lives, about people. The fight was not to attack those who, who were behind the abortions. It was the fight to save the children. Another major issue was in regard to marital and sexual purity. Where you had... Legal wives were producing family heirs and then you had all kinds of open and adulterous affairs that uh, could come from anything you could imagine. And then there was the gladiatorial games where there was uh, murders and, and people watched that as entertainment. The Emperor Trajan in Rome in 80 A.D., he talked about so many were in the games and so many were murdered that the sands of the floor were red with blood. A later emperor, he said that there were gladiators who fought for four months straight and every day the Colosseum was full of people. But what stood out was that the Christians did not come. The Christians did not participate in the gladiatorial games as spectators. And it was well known. And they were criticized. And people said, who do you think you are? You think you are so haughty. You just think you're better than the rest of us. Now we've come back to our land. And when we seek to live for Christ... When we seek to bring Him glory. When our lives are a little different than our neighbors who are around us. People come and they say, well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than the rest of us? It was interesting, back in Rome they said that there was a time one historian said there were no room for criminals in the prisons because they were full of church elders and deacons. Who were just simply trying to live for the Lord. 
And of course, now it's it's interesting in our culture. People name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero, and things have have turned a different direction. But we see we see the struggle, we see the battle even today. And Titus three one. He writes, remind these Cretan believers to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. We're called to be obedient to the governmental laws. Here in the state of Virginia, if you're in Tennessee, you get away with this one. You have to have your car inspected. Or you'll get a ticket. Uh, this is not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. You just get your car inspected. Or if you run a business, you have to pay your employees minimum wage. This is not something you pray about or getting your license renewed when it comes up to that time of renewal. There are certain laws they don't require us to fast and to pray and to seek God's will. But we as followers of Jesus are to keep these laws because we are commanded to live above the evil that is around us. You see, in that day, there was a madman on the throne. <laughs> he, The society was depraved. Sexual norms were out the window. And the, even the emperor, he was bisexual. There was adultery, idolatry, abortion, prostitution, drug addiction. And they were all placed under legal protection in that day. And the church did... The way that they attacked this was they started raising families... That followed Christ. The way the church attacked this. They started adopting those children. Nobody seemed to want it. The children were abandoned. Christians would take them into their own homes. And they would raise them as their own children. And they would love them. And, and they would give to them. Out of what God gave to them. They showed the world marital fidelity. By being faithful to their spouse. By living with a gentle intimacy. And honor was due to those who were in authority. Bring it down to today. You know, we ask our own selves. How respectful are we to those in charge? Are we respectful to our parents? Are we respectful to our elders and our pastors and our teachers? Are we respectful to our supervisors at our jobs? Do we pray for these people? Do we really love these people? How about this one? Do we promise to pay taxes and our debts in a timely manner? And to be responsible with our financial obligations? The first real threat to government forced revenue in American history took place in 1794 when the Whiskey Rebellion broke out. Pennsylvania farmers were upset. And they actually burned down the homes of tax collectors. Congress ended up putting down the revolt by military force. During the Civil War, it was said if somebody made more than $800, surely they should pay taxes. And as a result of that discussion... 1862, Congress brought the ultimate solution known as the Internal Revenue Service. Um, that solved everything. Okay, Todd. Be careful. Okay. You know what Benjamin Franklin famously said in 1789? Nothing is certain except death and taxes. Count on taxes. 
taxes. <laughs> in Romans 13, 6, we're to render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God's what is God. What is it due we are to render? So, you know, when that W-2 comes and it's time to file those taxes, we don't have to pray about it. We don't have to fall to our knees and ask God to change it or remove it. We just simply need to do it. Um, a man on vacation in Acapulco, in Mexico, he was suddenly heard a small child who was struggling to breathe. He knew enough Spanish to realize from his mother that was upset that he had, sm- he had swallowed a coin. And so this man, he went into action. He grabbed the child by his feet. He turned him upside down and he began to shake him. And an American quarter fell out of the kid's mouth. And the mother said, you seem to know just how to get it out of him. Are you a doctor? No, ma'am, replied the man. I work for the United States Internal Revenue Service. (laughs) You see, a verbal agreement to the Christian is as binding as a 10-page contract. It tells us in James our yes should be yes and our no should be no. That our word should be our bond. And that is so contrary in a culture that we live now. I think of even the day um, we have some property uh, that came down to us when my dad died. And the best way to get on the property, the best right away, was through a handshake. Doesn't help me much now, right? But that was a day where people, man, if you made an agreement, it was honored. It was to be believed. And we see even now um, in Ephesians 4, verses 25 and 28... He talks about do not steal any longer. The word, uh, the Greek word there is klepto. Sound familiar? You know, the kleptomaniac, the the one who just steals everything. As a matter of fact, $16 million are stolen from retailers in the United States by their employees every single day. It's a lot. So stealing is certainly not something that is foreign to our land. I I close with this example um, from Warren Wearsby. Who shares an example that happened back in 1805. When some Indian chiefs and warriors came. And um, they heard at a council meeting there from Mr. Cram who was a evangelist from the Boston Missionary Society, and he brought forth a very powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After he spoke, one of the chiefs named Red Jacket stood up and he briefly addressed the people who were there. Here's what he said. We are told that you've been preaching To the white people in this same town. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them all. We will wait a little while. And see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good. Makes them less likely to cheat Indians. We will then consider again. What you have said. So what about us? What does the name Christian mean? Let's pray. 
Father, as we approach you, Lord. I mean, every time we come to church, every time that we gather to worship you, we should expect you to be among us, Lord, and to move our hearts. And so the question is, in a message like this, you haven't moved, so how do I need to move to you? What area are you speaking to me about that I may not conceal my sin, Lord, but confess and renounce my sin, Lord? Father, I pray that you might move among us, um, whether it's to come to the altar to pray, to make a decision before you um, now, or, Father, um, just to obey whatever that may be, Lord. May you be free to speak to us, Lord. May we be open to you. Father, this living to your name, Father, it does not come without the Spirit of God leading the Spirit of God, we welcome you. As we stand, as we sing, lead us, Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.